Welcome to Saturday Night at the Movies, the podcast that celebrates classic, current, and cult films and the people that made them. I'm your host, Steve Rubin. Our producer's Ben Shrewsbury, and we're on the Lock 22 Network. Here it's always Saturday night, and I'm pleased to welcome our guest tonight, talent agent Bud Moss, who will offer us a bird's eye view into the talent business in the 1960s and beyond. Welcome, Bud. Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening. <laughs> I, I, I was reading up on you, and it reminded me of um, a scene in the great Billy Wilder movie, Sunset Boulevard, uh, where I believe it was Nancy Gates is telling um, William Holden about her life, and she talks about all of her relatives that were in the film business, and she called herself part of a picture family in 1950s parlance. In a, in a lot of ways, you too were part of a picture family. Yes. My father was a film editor at 20th Century Fox Studio during the late 30s, 40s. And my uncle, my mother's brother, Sam Zimbalist, was considered probably the greatest producer in Hollywood over the many years that he produced films going back to the early Gable-Tracy films like Boomtown, Tortilla Flats, The Steinbeck Project, and then working his way up through uh, the war and produced uh, 30 Seconds Over Tokyo. He uh, was very close to Clark Gable over the years, and he did Magambo, which I think introduced uh, a young lady by the name of Grace Kelly. Correct me if I'm wrong. That's, that's totally correct. What are your memories of working uh, your father and your uncle? Did you, from a, from a young age, were you exposed to the movie business or were you kind of sheltered from it? When I was probably around 10 or 11 years old, my father took me and my mother to a cast and crew screening at 20th Century Fox Studios to see a film called Blood and Sand. The film, needless to say, had a couple of newcomers in it, along with Tyrone Power. It had Tony Quinn, and everybody was captivated by this amazing, beautiful, red-headed woman by the name of Rita Hayworth, who became probably the reason why I went ahead to become an uh, agent years later, was to find Rita Hayworth again many, many years later. So you were on the Fox lot in 1941. Uh, it's so funny you should mention Tyrone Power, uh, a, a film Tyrone Power starred in. Um, when I first arrived in California, I arrived at the LA airport about 1954. And uh, we were just traveling to visit my uncle in, in from Chicago. We were visiting my uncle in LA. And my mother has fond memories of me standing in my little car code in the LAX airport and Tyrone Power walked over and picked me up in his arms. And my mother was floating at the time. It was quite a moment. Um, I think from then on, I was always conscious of movie stars around. Uh, were you, um, uh, you said you went to a screening at Fox. Um, did you have any other encounters with celebrities when you were a kid? Not really. I had a, I guess you would consider a normal life. Uh, the uh, 
times that I went over to my Uncle Sam's home in Santa Monica, he had the only swimming pool in the neighborhood on 7th Street. And I can't remember how old I was, but I probably was around maybe 13, 14 years old. And there were all these actors kind of sitting around reading scripts. Uh, A couple of them were over in the tennis courts. And these people that they called actors turned out to be over the period of years that were there with my uncle over the years at his swimming pool were Catherine Hepburn, Tracy, Gable, Hepburn. Um, I'm trying to remember who else, but that was kind of his his in-group. Those were the people that he was very close to as he worked his way up to become, once again, Hollywood's greatest producer, having made films, uh, including Quo Vadis, and the last film that he made was uh, Ben-Hur. Right, which was And sadly, yeah. my uncle, the day after the chariot races, was on the phone with uh, a Mr. Mannix at uh, MGM Studios trying to get another $5 million to finish the film the way that he wanted to finish the film. And out of nowhere, he had a massive heart attack and died right on the set. Oh, my God. Wow, that's that's quite a story. Um, when you were in school, uh, did you, um, what, were you, what were your studies about? What were you interested in at the time? Well, I don't think that I really started to think about what an actor did or what an actor is supposed to do in junior high school, Louis Pasteur Junior High School in um, Los Angeles. The uh, graduation play dealt with the airplane pilot that was going to fly the cow to the moon so the cow could then jump over the moon. (laughs) And with helmet and goggles, I became the pilot which was probably my first introduction to becoming an actor. So you started your career with acting aspirations. Correct. And then in high school, Hamilton High School, which ironically I found out years later that Rita Hayworth went to Hamilton for one year. Uh, I was in an acting uh, class with a Mabel Montague. She was our drama teacher. And my best buddy that I ran with all the time was Joel Gray. And we both at that time decided we are going to continue going after our uh, careers. Well, you and I are kindred spirits because I also am a Hamilton grad. My goodness gracious. Small world time. It is small world time. So what 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 were your first steps after high school? I went to Los Angeles City College. Right. And uh, got involved in the drama department there. And the first year, it was really all studying about building sets, makeup, uh, backstage uh, responsibilities. And they didn't let you get onto the little theater stage until the second year. There were several people that I started to hang out with 
and one was Robert Vaughn, who we became very good friends with. Once again, this was at L.A. City College, and Robert started a little theater group during the summer in Tustin, and he went down to Tustin with his partner, Sherwood Price, to do plays down there at the summer, and they started a kiddie program, and they needed Popcorn Pete the Clown to come and talk to the children about his partner, Gertrude, who was always trying to find the Wicked Witch of the West. And I was Popcorn Pete the Clown. <laughs> I had this Cyrano de Bergerac nose and would sit on the floor with these kids and regale them with all kind of marvelous kitty stories. That's a one, that, that, that is definitely a, a great, great image. Robert Vaughn, of course, we all know from later on in his career, um, uh, from The Man from UNCLE, of course, and The Magnificent Seven. And uh, I had the opportunity to interview him shortly before he passed about uh, one of his best roles, which I thought was in The Bridge at Remagen, where he played the German officer in charge of the bridge. Mm. I thought he did a terrific job playing a German. That he did. Well, Robert uh, became a client of our agency. I'm trying to think the the year, but once again, we were reunited, and apparently he had some friends over at Metro, and they had seen some of his work. And Sam Rolfe, who was a producer, writer, who goes back to Have Gun, Will Travel over at Paramount, was going to make Man from Uncle, and they decided that they wanted to do, they wanted Robert Vaughn to play that character. So all of a sudden, visualize that picture from L.A. City College to Summerstock to MGM, and I made his deal. I mean, Bob and I used Bobby, we would talk to call him, could not get over the fact that all these years later, old Popcorn Pete came and made his contract deal for Man From Uncle. <laughs> um, before we get into the agency business, let's go back to the acting business. So after Popcorn Pete, did you start to get some work in film and TV? Well, I would find myself... I started out doing some extra work um, in, in, uh, at the studios. I had the opportunity on uh, a film called Blackboard Jungle to meet a young actor who had made just a few minor films, and this was his really great role to be playing in Blackboard Jungle, and that was Sidney Poitier. And Sidney and I, with Vic Morrow who both became clients of our agency a few years later, uh, would sit around and talk backstage or off set and talk about what we're going to do when we grow up. And Sidney said, buddy, when you uh, have some time after you've, we finish this film, I'd like to have you come to New York, if you would like, and spend a week with me at my home, and I will take you around and show you what Harlem's like. So that was my introduction to Sydney, and we hung out, and we became intimate friends. And back over the years, I would be on the set on many of his films that my boss, Martin Baum, was able to negotiate for him. I mean, he had a, a list of some of the most beautiful films that Sydney made all over the years 
especially over in Europe, Paris. Uh, there was a film he did with Diane Carroll uh, that had the title Paris something in it, which I can't remember. It's interesting that you should mention Sydney because I have some holes in my uh, film watching over the years I've been trying to fill lately, and I watched his movie A Raisin in the Sun just this past week. And uh, this is from 1961, and I have to tell you that was a film that that, oh. that was a film that made him Sidney Poitier and got him his got him his Oscar. I was there, not on the set because they shot down somewhere I think in Texas or someplace, but we were all the whole all the agency just kept uh, Ralph Nelson I think was the director. Correct me if I'm wrong. Well, actually, you're confusing it with Lilies of the Field. I think Lilies of the Field is where he won his Oscar. I looked it up. Uh, um, Dan, you're right. I stand corrected. Yeah, Dan Petrie directed uh, *Raising the Sun*. I was actually surprised that Dan uh, that *Raising the Sun* did not get any Oscar glory because that was the year of *West Side Story*, and I think *West Side Story* and some other pictures that year. I think *Judgment at Nuremberg* took uh, took a little bit off the table, but Sidney was so yeah. powerful in that role. It, it, my impression of Sidney Poitier that he is, he was one of the nicest men you could meet. That he was. The nicest person that you will ever meet in the world. Sydney uh, grew up uh, in uh, uh, the Bahamas on a place called Cat Island. It was total poverty in his family. I mean, they had no money. Uh, his mother and father uh, were basically sharecroppers. Um, Sydney, ironically, had never seen himself in a mirror until he was 15 years old. He had no idea what he looked like, and he was apparently going into town and finally saw, he had never seen a car before at 15, and he saw himself in a mirror and introduced himself to Sidney Poitier. Wow, that, that's great. So you spent some time with Sidney, you worked on Blackboard Jungle. What comes next? Uh, what comes next with Sydney was a long, if you'd like to know, was a long relationship. No, no I meant, uh, I was what, what, I'm sorry, I meant what comes next with you? In my, as far as my career? Yes. Well, from the high school, from, from Los Angeles City College, uh, where were we here? I went on. You went over to New York. I mean, you went. You worked on Blackboard Jungle uh, with Sydney, and so you were starting to get some extra work here and there. And then, what were you doing? Well, I had gone. I was. I was. I was an aficionado to, for the sake of a better word, of bullfighting. I found myself fascinated, going back to seeing Blood and Sand, and I was starting to go uh, every Sunday with a lot of my friends down to Tijuana to the to the bullfights as I think I mentioned Tony Quinn was my one of my dad's closest friends on the lot at Fox during those days of blood and sand and I went down to um, Tijuana there's a hotel down there called the Caesar Hotel which is where all the bullfighters would hang out uh, before and after the fight and as I went in to see in the bar who was there all of a sudden, I somebody hearing yell, "Hey, Bud, Bud Moss, it's me, Tony Quinn. Come on over here." And there was Tony sitting with a group of people. This was 1956 now, 
And I went over there, and Sydney, uh, Tony said, Bud, I want you to meet my dear friend whom I've just got recently working with. This is Ruth Roman. This is Bud Moss. And I said, oh, Miss Roman, I said, I recently saw you in Joe Macbeth, I think was a film that she made, uh, which was a, a takeoff of the uh, classic Macbeth. Correct me if I'm wrong. And we started talking, and I had uh, opened a little bar up in Westwood Village at my family's restaurant called the Matador Room, which was dedicated to bullfighting. And the whole room was about the size of my little office here. It would probably hold 50 people, if that, at the most. And it, I would play flamenco music all night long, and I was the bartender. And I had invited Ruth after the bullfights to come up to have uh, a drink with me. What was the name of your family's restaurant? Originally, it started out to be the Cattleman Steakhouse, which was on the corner of Pico and Veteran. And they had the dollar fifty-nine Del, Del, Delmonico steak for a dollar fifty for these with soup and salad <laughs> and stuffed baked potato for the kids at UCLA. And we kept it the Cattleman Steakhouse until I got involved in bullfighting, and then we turned it to the Matador Restaurant, and that's what uh, it probably came. If you're familiar with that neighborhood down the street from the Landmark uh, Theater, directly across the street was the famous Mexican restaurant Casa Escobar. Do you remember that? Very much so. Very. Much. I know that I grew up in that neighborhood. I used to go to the Pickwood Theater when it was a standalone before they became a mall. And uh, right. sad, sadly, those landmark theaters are now gone. They've been closed, which is sad. But I know that area very well. There, it's, it's so funny you should mention that neighborhood because down the street from your restaurant was Vic Mature's uh, electronic shop. Interesting. Crazy, crazy, crazy. So you, uh, you invited Ruth to come up and have a drink with you at the Matador Room. Right. And she came there. It was like midnight. It was smoky, noisy, loud. She came in and I said, what would you like to drink? And she's looking around and she said, scotch. And I gave her a, a double shot of, uh, of Cuddy Sark on the rocks. And we had the drink and she said, bud, this place is too noisy. I've just tired from the drive from Tijuana. I'll come back soon one of these days. And two weeks later, she had been down to the Pickwood Theater uh, with a girlfriend, and I just walked down the street to the corner of Veteran and Pico and came into the restaurant, and we started to visit. We started to chat, and uh, she explained. At that time, I think her uh, marriage with Mortimer Hall, who was the son of the legendary Dorothy Schiff in New York, who owned the New York Post, and uh, uh was one of uh, FDR's quiet mistresses over the years, which was a little touch of history. Interesting. So Ruth and I started to date, and um, she had to go to Paris to do some retakes on a film she made with Akim Tamirov. And she says, why don't you come over, why don't you come with me, and we'll be able to spend some time in Paris and uh, then go down to Cannes and spend some time there. And she had her son, Richard, was with her. And he, at the time, he was, I think, three or four years old. And I said, Ruth, I just can't leave the uh, the restaurant. It's uh, 
a one-man show here, and I have to be here at all times. So sadly, she took off and went to Paris, did the film, went to Cannes, and played for about a week there with a lot of her Riviera friends. And then she called me, and she said, I'm coming home. I miss you. I want to see you. Can you meet me in New York? And I said, well, why don't you call me when you get to close to New York, and I'll let you know where I'm, what my schedule is. I don't know whether or not you remember. She told me the name of the boat or the ship that she was getting on, and it was so ship-to-shore radio. It was so difficult to understand what the name of the ship was. So all of a sudden, like four or five days later, I'm in the bar working, and two guys came across the street from uh, Casa Escar bar who had been drinking and said, Jesus, we were just hearing that there was this big luxury liner sinking off the coast of New York by the Andrea Doria. Turns out Ruth was on the Andrea Doria, which was off the coast of Nantucket, that had collided with a Swedish luxury liner called the Stockholm. I don't know if you were familiar with that story well, or that Andrea bit Dory, of history. Yeah, the Andrea Dory story is very well known. So, so Ruth was on that ship, huh? She was on the ship, and when it collided, she was up in the uh, main uh, dining area, and she went racing down to uh, the place where her cabin was with her housekeeper and with Richard and scooped them up and went back up to the top trying to find somebody to help her get to a lifeboat. And they were lowering these lifeboats just on one side of the the ship. Uh, she managed to slowly lower Richard with the housekeeper, with the nanny, down to this lifeboat, and just as she was ready to get into it, they're yelling, there's no more room, there's no more room. The guys at the top will pull you up and put you in another lifeboat. And she was hanging on the side of this sinking ship for what seemed to be 10, 15 minutes before somebody spotted her and pulled her up and got her into another lifeboat, <clears throat> which was then taking the survivors to the Ile de France, which was hap just happening to have left New York to go to to go to your, to go to France, and uh, they put her on the uh, on the on the uh, Ile de France, and the first person she ran into was Betsy Drake, who I think was the wife of Cary Grant at the time. Correct me if I'm wrong. And that I don't know, but Hello? what a story. And uh, they spent the night looking for Richard on the boat. They never found him. And they finally got her to New York, and she went. they took her to the Warwick Hotel, which is where she would always stay. And she had I'm, I'm, been I'm calling sorry. me all night long. Pardon but, me? But, but I'm sorry for interrupting. You said they looked for Richard, her son? No, not her son. Yes? Her son, Richard, that she lowered into the lifeboat, was put on to the Stockholm, which was a ship that sank the Andrea Doria. She didn't know where he was. She lost oh, him. Oh, I see. So she was looking for him, et cetera. This is very interesting because uh, Andrew Stone, the great film director, producer, later made, later made a movie called The Last Voyage with Dorothy Malone and, um, and Edmund O'Brien and, uh, and uh, Robert Stack which was filmed aboard the Ile de France shortly before she was scuttled and, uh, uh, you know, uh, put into 
uh, into metal bits. Um, uh, so that's interesting that she went from the Andrea Doria, which sank and was on the Ile de France, which was later part of a movie about a sinking ship. Interesting. So, so she, she uh, was on the um, Ile de France and did the Ile de France turn around and drop her off in New York? Took, every, took all, the, all the passengers back to New York and uh, she, they said, where can we take you? And she said, the Warwick Hotel, which was, I think, on 55th and 8th Avenue, somewhere around there. And I, the minute that I had heard that the ship was sinking, I knew, didn't know where I was going to go, but I said, I've got to go to New York. This is like 12, 1 o'clock at night. And I went home, got some clothes together, and found a plane, a United flight, that was going to Denver, Chicago, and then into New York. But this is, once again, 12, 1 o'clock at night, and I flew all night long to get to New York. And when I landed, I called the Warwick Hotel, and I said to see if I could make a reservation. And the operator said, is this Bud Moss? And I said, yes. She said, Mrs. Roman, Miss Roman has been trying to reach you all night long. And she connected me with Ruth in the room, and she said, "Where are you?" And I said, I, "She said I've been calling you all night long." I said, "Been on? I've been on a plane, racing to come to New York to find you." And they managed to get me upstairs. Uh, the, the crowd out in front of the hotel knew she was there, and everybody was trying to get pictures of her to get stories from her. And they took me up the waiter's elevator to the penthouse there. And I went to the door. Ruth came there with a tattered bathrobe on. And uh, you could see that she has looked like she was still in shock. And her mother-in-law, Dorothy Schiff, had opened the door to me and said, who, who are you? And I said, I'm, I'm Bud Moss, a friend of Miss Romans. And then she looked at Ruth as the phone was ringing. And it was her husband, it was her son, Morty Hall, calling and she gets on the phone, Dorothy gets on the phone, and she starts yelling at her. She said, you should have been here right now at this moment uh, instead of Ruth, Ruth Lover or something to that effect. And she kept saying, we've lost Richard, we've lost Richard, I don't know where to find him. And we spent that night and the next day and that night again, and around 5 in the morning, the Coast Guard cutter, the Coast Guard office contacted her, and they said, "We found your son. He's alive, and he's on the Stockholm. The Stockholm brought him into port there, and there was hundreds of people, if not a thousand people, down there at the docks when the Stockholm pulled in, and the front of the Stockholm was just ripped apart, having collided with the Andrea Doria." And she could see little Richard. They were holding him up on the, the railing, and he's waving, waving to, to, to what Ruth. What a moment. <laughs> and their pictures. If you Google Ruth Roman, Andrea Doria photos, you'll see this historic photo of her grabbing, finally grabbing her son and holding him in his, her arms. And he said, the first thing he said to her, he says, you know, Mommy, he said, that ship sank with all my toys on it. <laughs> First thing that he said. But is, so, is, is, is Richard still with us today? Richard is, um, 
Uh, I, I'm in touch with him. I talk to him maybe a couple times a month. He lives up in uh, Washington State. Uh, he's an engineer. He builds uh, motors. I can't remember for where, but he's t- totally out of the business. And uh, very few people know that he was the, the son of, of Ruth Roman up in uh, that area. Well, I've always enjoyed her performances, particularly in Strangers on a Train, uh, opposite Classic film. Just a, a marvelous film. What was Ruth like uh, uh, in real life? I, uh, was she a rather private woman? Did she like to go out a lot? What was, what was she like? Ruth and her sister, when they were raised in, in Boston, they were in pro- Poverty Row. The word poor was uh, an exaggeration. I mean, they were so broke that they didn't know where their next meal was coming at times. The Her her father had a tiny little carnival with a merry-go-round and a Ferris wheel, which did no, be- no business on the beach. I think, I can't remember the name of the beach there. I almost wanted to say Rebo- Rehoboth, but that's down near North Carolina. But anyhow, she started someone suggested that she go to a drama school in Boston and I used to remember the name of the drama school and she got involved and being as attractive as she was they encouraged her to go to New York to do some modeling which she started to do and she was a cigarette girl at a famous New York restaurant that caught fire many years ago, and she managed to escape uh, safely at that. But she found herself modeling and eventually working her way to Hollywood and a Warner Brothers contract. And the first actor that she met that was under contract was Ronald Reagan. And they became intimate friends over the years at Warner Brothers. And I think Ruth had said at one time they both thought that they were going to get married, that they had talked about marriage. And I think that it was Ruth who said, you know, Ronnie, she said, we've got our whole careers ahead of us. She said, I don't think that it's time for us to get married. What we should do is concentrate more on our careers, which is what they did. And needless to say, Ronnie did rather well with that uh, over the period of years. (laughs) <laughs> as did uh, as did Ruth. So you uh, you guys uh, survived the craziness of that shipping. Uh, her her only almost losing her life, and then you decided to get married. Well, what we did was um, there was a famous opera singer by the name of Eleanor Stever, going back to those years, and she managed to be able to get through to Ruth on the phone and said that she had this beautiful home near Port Jefferson, and why don't you come out and stay here so you can thaw out and stay away from the world. So we went out there, and we spent four or five days, and Ruth liked it so much, and she was so relaxed that she said, you know, let's find a house nearby that maybe we can rent for a month and just stay away from Hollywood and stay away from the press. And we found a little home uh, near, as I said, right near Port Jefferson. And it was a beautiful place. And we were like 
a five-minute walk to the beach. And we were settling down there. And then a couple of days after we got settled down, uh, there was a knock at the front door. And I walked over to the door and opened it. And there was this elderly man with a, an envelope in his hand. And he said, are you Mr. Roman? And I said, no, I'm, I'm, I'm Bud Moss. He said, well, can you give this message to Mr. Ro- Miss Roman for me? It's from Cornelia Otis Skinner, who was a legendary actress, writer. Cornelia wrote with a partner, Our Hearts Were Young and Gay, which was a very famous book back in the in the 40s, which all the young girls would read and then find themselves going off to Paris uh, following the life that uh, Skinner had when she was a young, in her teenage, going to Paris with her girlfriend. It was interesting. Anyhow, the letter was so touching. Uh, it said that she watched every moment uh, from the time that Ruth was brought to off the, the, with, with all the survivors from the Andrea Doria. And she said, I was so touched and so moved by your 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 love for this child and she said i hope if you're interested uh during the time that you're here i have a little wooden cottage right on the water which is maybe a half uh maybe 500 yards from where we are right now and it's where i would go to write my plays and throw rocks at the seagulls who only thought that i was crazy and that be kind of came our love nest there and um we would spend hours with Richard and without Richard at this little cabin on the beach. And it was during that time we then thought it was a, a good time to start talking about getting married. We decided to do that. We came back to Hollywood. Where do you want to go for your honeymoon? And we started talking France, Germany, Italy. Where do you want to go? And we both said we want to go and follow the bulls. We wanted to follow the bullfighters. And we went to Spain with Richard. We took a freighter. Now, mind you, she gets off the Andrea Doria in July. In October, we found a freighter in Long Beach now, that had nine passengers. My first question would be, was, was she not a fan of flying? She hated flying. She would use it for the last resort, which was very, very seldom. But I, we had uh, you, when we came back, Ruth got a job in New York and toured with a play called Two for the Seesaw. We found ourselves flying on numerous occasions. But whenever there was a train nearby, she would rather take that. Where, where, did, so, your we, where did your wedding take place? We decided to get married on this freighter oh. and have the captain marry us. As we sailed out to port we talked we met with the cabin and he said i can marry you but you have to have a minister aboard he said so unfortunately they're going to have to wait until i get you to panama and we can arrange while the boat's going through the canal we can arrange for you to have a justice of the peace uh, marry you we're going down the coast past acapulco working our way down to panama when Ruth gets a cable, the captain brought a cable to Ruth, it turns out, small world time, that a girl that she had met on a cruise 
going from New York to France many years before. They had drinks together. They became friends. This girl in Panama, her husband, her father, worked for the Westfall Larson line in Panama City. And he said to his daughter, I think Ruth Roman's going to be passing by here to go to uh, through the canal to go to Europe. She said, let's contact her and let her get married here in Panama. And with cables that went back and forth, I visualized this nine-passenger freighter coming into the harbor in Panama. This girl had arranged with her connections with the vice president of Panama. You know, when a boat comes into port, a big boat, all these little tugboats come around and they start shooting water onto the big boats uh, celebrating their arrival. Right. Our little our little freighter was drenched with maybe 50 <laughs> little boats coming all around there shooting water up into the air to welcome us into Panama. Oh, that's we got to Panama, into Panama City. We checked into the hotel, and she made all these arrangements for our, us to get married at the hotel. And she said, I know you talk about your bullfighting and you're going to Spain. Uh, I said, uh, there's a bullfighter that I became friendly with by the name of Luis Miguel Dominguin. She says, well, it just so happens that Luis Miguel Dominguin's closest and intimate friend is the Secretary of Treasury in Panama, and he's going to stand up for you because he wants to talk to you about going to Spain and talk to you about Dominguin. The man's name was Fernando Eletra, E-L-E-T-R-A, and he was very highly in the government in, uh, in, in Panama. And he stood up for me or with me, and the, uh, the vice president of Panama was uh, our, our honored guest at the wedding. There's pictures around. I've pulled them up at times on, uh, on the computer. And Fernando said, come on, we're going to go up to my home uh, to celebrate the, uh, the wedding. And he had this beautiful mansion overlooking the whole harbor of uh, Panama. They had cases of Don Pignon that they were pouring into the swimming pool, practically. And we had this swimming party. Ruth didn't go in, but I managed to take a, a quick dip. And when we were ready to leave, he sent two cases of Don Pignon and had them put into our limousine so we could drink on the way back to uh, Antwerp, Belgium, where we got off, which was a what, 25-day, 20-day cruise. I can't remember how long it took to get there, but it was a long time, and we did enjoy, along with the passengers, we passed out in the crew some of the champagne that we had. I think we finished the cases before we got uh, into Antwerp. So when you I guys forgot got... to tell... Yeah, go ahead. Sorry. I forgot I... to tell you, when Ruth was in um, Cannes, um, she bought a little Simca station wagon there so that she could drive around with her son and her friends for the time that she was going to be spending there. The Simca station wagon was put on a freighter that was going to go through the Panama Canal and up to San Pedro, California. It was the only thing that survived the sinking of the Andrea Doria. Oh, God. <laughs> and we then put that freighter, that little Simca station wagon, 
back on our freighter and took it to uh, took it back to Europe. And when we when we got off the boat in Antwerp, there was a problem in the Suez Canal dealing with oil and. There was like an oil embargo, if I remember correctly. You're making me go back to 1956. Well, that but was the whole. Apparently, yeah, that was the whole beginning of the uh, Arab-Israeli war, uh, which pitted uh, Israel, England, and France against the Arab world, and uh, yeah, the whole a whole Suez crisis. Absolutely. Now, when you right. got when you got back to California, did you? How long did you stay in the restaurant business? Because it sounds like you started to be a little bit more active in Hollywood. Well, I did whatever I had to do. My brother David was always with me at the restaurant. My folks had bought a hundred-acre ranch up in Malibu. Up in Malibu. Uh, have you ever gone up to where there's a little restaurant up there called Saddle Peak Lodge? Yes, yes, absolutely. It's very famous. When my mom and dad used to go driving around on weekends, Saddle Peak Lodge had six stools and a hitching post out in front where the cowboys and the hillbillies would tie up their horses. That was the extent of Saddle Peak Lodge. They met two hillbillies there for the sake of a better name and when they'd go back every week or every sunday for uh, breakfast or something they said they had a hundred acre ranch down the road that they've been wanting to sell but they didn't think that anybody could come up with a hundred dollars an acre in those days so they hadn't done much about selling it my dad said I think we can find a hundred dollars an acre for you guys if you want to sell immediately <laughs> so they bought that ranch and kept it for many, many years, built their home there, sold the Matador, sold the restaurant finally, and that was where they went to retire. Gotcha, gotcha. Now, you told me that, uh, and this moves ahead a few years, that you were responsible for putting one of Ruth's pictures together, which is a, one of my favorites. I've seen it so many times. Look, Look in any window. window. So tell us how all that began to get together. Well, I was working at uh, General Artists Corporation as an agent, and uh, Paul Anka was one of our so-called hot clients, and uh, Jack Cassidy was a client, and uh, Ruth, and I can't remember who else, but in those days it was really quite simple to put together a film. I don't remember what studio we went through but it was a film that was going to introduce Paul Anka as, a, as an actor. And that's how that film came about. Well, I, um, I had the uh, joy and honor of having Paul Anka on my show earlier this year. And mm -hmm. 1962 was a big year for him. Um, uh, with the, he was also in The Longest Day with that huge cast. Yeah. Um, Tell me how you got into the agency business from restaurants. When Ruth and I got home from Europe, where we went for, we wanted to stay two or three months there. We ended up staying almost two years in Europe. We leased a home in Madrid, 
and fulfilled our dream. I became very friendly with Luis Miguel Dominguin, who was thrilled to know that Fernando Oletra had stood up for me. And Dominguin, in the bullfighting world, was always considered one of the truly great matadors of that time. Uh, there was a legendary bullfighter by the name of Manolete, who was considered, before Dominguin, the world's greatest bullfighter. And they had always wanted to get Dominguin and Manolete together for a mano a mano, as they referred to it, a hand-to-hand, just the two guys fighting six bulls. Wow. make a long story very short, Dominguin fought the first bull, and he was brilliant. Manolete fought the second bull, and he was even more brilliant than Dominguin. And then on the second bull that Manolete was fighting, a gust of wind came along and flipped up his cape, and the bull caught that cape and was able to gore Manolete in the groin. (coughs) And it was a, a grave wound. And they took him into the infirmary, and Dominguin spent the night sitting next to his idol, Manolete, as he bled to death, because his doctor was in Madrid, and nobody thought of ever having his doctor come down to the small little village called Linares, where uh, Dominguin and uh, Manolete uh, fought together. Going back from Spain... Uh, by, by the way, I'm, I'm sorry to interrupt you, bud, but were you there watching this 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 bullfight? No, that was in '47. No, I wasn't there for that oh, you one. There. Okay, so it's like, so coming back from Spain. Coming back from Spain, um, Ruth got a phone call from her agent in London, saying that um, Nick Ray was making a film called Bitter Victory, uh, and uh, it turned out that um, um, the Leedy that they that they had in the film dropped out. I think it was Joan Crawford, if I remember correctly. And we flew to the south of France, and there was Nick Ray and uh, Kurt Jurgens, and a young actor by the name of Richard Burton, who had the apartment right next door to us at the Negresco Hotel in Cannes. And we were there for a month making this film, and it was Richard. Burton's really kind of coming out party. He was so sensational. He he just loved being with people. And we all knew that he was going to go on to be a, a great movie star at that time. On our way back to New York, Ruth got a call while we were there from an agent by the name of Martin Baum. And he said, I heard that you just made a film with Richard Burton and there's a couple of films that we're working on, along with a couple of plays, that might be of interest to you. There was a play called Two for the Seesaw that Henry Fonda and Jane Alexander did. It was a two-character play. No, it was Anne Bancroft and Henry Fonda in this play called Two for the Seesaw. And they wanted a national company to go out as soon as possible and they asked if Ruth would meet with um, the producers and director Fred Coe, 
was a big Broadway producer at the time, and they met with Ruth to see if she would be interested in going out with a play, and she ended up reading for the part. And and Bancroft, who was a buddy of hers, who became a major star doing the Broadway production, Ruth said, well, let me see the play first. And she went to the play. And as we went backstage afterwards, Anne Bancroft threw her arms around Ruth, and she said, I knew you were out in the audience, Ruth. And she said, when I auditioned for this play in New York, I said, I hope that we can lock the doors and keep Ruth Roman from coming into the theater because I know if she came in, she would get this part. And they said, well, we're going to let her take out the national company. And that's how she met Martin Baum, who was her agent. During the time that we went out on the road or getting ready to go on the road, Marty Baum said to me, what are you going to do while Ruth's playing in Denver and Chicago and Detroit and Pittsburgh? What are you going to do? And I said, well, I might think about going back to acting or doing this or going in the restaurant business. He said, I just, from what little time I've spent with the two of you, he said, I think you have the uh, the, the personality that could uh, turn into a being an agent, and I'm opening a new office uh, by the time the tour is finished in Hollywood. He says, if you, while Ruth's doing the play, could meet me, uh, at the Polo Lounge at the Beverly Hills Hotel, I'll send you a ticket every time I go to New York, if I leave New York and go to L.A., and I'd like to have you show me how to get out to Paramount and to Universal Studios, and I'll teach you how to be a great agent. So on April, May, probably May 1st, 1960, Marty opened his office in Hollywood called General Artists Corporation, and I didn't have to go to the mailroom I didn't have to go to any other <laughs> menial job. I just all of a sudden went in, and there I was, a famous Hollywood agent. Now, in those days, and excuse me for this little aside, did, did you have to come to work dressed in a suit and tie every day? Always. Had a always. tie on every day. Absolutely. That's the image we always have of agents during that period and later, of course. And I think that extends to today. I think agents and the big agencies are always very dressy. Yep. Who I can't your... speak for a lot of the other agencies. I know CAA. CAA, whenever I would go over to see an agent or a friend of mine, everybody was in suit and tie. Who was your first client? <coughs> well, Apart from Ruth, but they handled another agent handled her. I didn't want to get involved. Um, there was a group of, of, of young actors that um, that I was aware of. There was one actor by the name of Paul Richards. I don't know whether that main name means anything to you, but Paul, I always thought could be the next Paul Muni, a brilliant actor who found himself getting lost in the crowd playing cowboys all the time. And we became close friends. And I would put a little extra time into getting him a TV show or a, a part in a movie during the first couple of years that I was there. Um, there were other young actors working their way up. Uh, Sally Kellerman was a waitress up on Sunset Boulevard at a little restaurant called Chez Follette. 
And I used to go in there with friends and have a drink. And uh, she was doing some little bit parts here and there. And all of a sudden, I found out that she was available, that she had left one of her agents. And uh, we grabbed her and we said, we're going to make a star out of you. So Sally was one of one of the first really stars that I enjoyed working with. There was an actress out of New York by the name of Norma Crane, who sadly died much too earlier from cancer. But, but, I'm, I'm, but I'm reading a little trivia about Paul Richards. According to IMDb, uh, Paul Richards... Okay, I, there, here it is. Hang on one second. I had it just here for a second. He played the first character on Gunsmoke to shoot right. Marshall, Marshall Matt Dillon and the first character on Hawaii Five O, to which Steve McGarrett said, "Book 'em, Dano." <laughs> so that's a funny little piece. And, and I, I think I probably probably <laughs> put him into that Hawaiian Five O. And you look at Paul Richards, and he's been in a million things. Great character actor. Died much too young yep. at fifty. Um, um, so you you represented Sally Kellerman, of course, and shortly she would be. Uh, uh, wouldn't she be uh, Hot Lips and M.A.S.H.? Long story short, <clears throat> the, uh, one of the producers of that film, and I'm trying to rewind the film, by the name of Ingo Preminger, who's Otto Preminger's brother, had the rights to a book. I want to say a book. I'm not quite sure dealing with the uh, uh, the the war in... Um, Korea. Where were we? In, in Korea for the MASH. Is that correct? Or was it uh, in, in the... In, no, it was Korea. It, it was Korea. And um, we had uh, Ingo Preminger producing the film with Bob Altman, and who became a close friend and I think eventually a client at one time. And they had Donald Sutherland, and they had Elliot Gould, and I can't remember. There was one other actor, but they said that they wanted to um, uh, find Hot Lips, and we had sent Sally over there, and they liked her, but they weren't quite sure whether or not she was that right for it. And I, at that time, had just left GAC over a terrible argument I had with Marty Baum, over Nancy Sinatra, which I can come back to if you'd like. Sure. And Sally turned down the part at one point, and when I came back from some other place and I'd gone back over to see Ingo, they had yet to hire an actress for it. And I said, well, what happened to Sally? And she said, well, she came over, she said she liked it, and then she said, no, I'm not really right for it. I said, give me five minutes. And Sally had gone to the Morris office at that time. And I called her and I said, Sally, you're making one of the biggest mistakes of your life. I said, you should get right into your car and go over and see Bob Altman this afternoon and read for that part. It's a star-making role for you, which she did. And needless to say, she got nominated for an Oscar. I had three actresses in my small little world get nominated for an Oscar. One for Diane Cannon, who I put into Bob Carroll, Ted and Alice, who the producers loved her, but they didn't think that she was that right for her, for the part. And they were going to test 
three other actresses that week for the part of Alice. And she said, why can't you test me? And they said, well, we've got our three. And then she started using the F letter as we were walking out of the office with these guys. And we got to the lobby of the hotel, and she says, I want that F part. And I said, well, tell you what you're going to have to do. You, you have to get Cary Grant, who is your husband, divorced husband at that point, to call Mike Frankovich, who was the head of Columbia Studios, who used to be a great football player at SC many years ago. And you have to have Mike Frankovich call the producers and say, Diane Cannon is going to play that part in Bob Carroll's Ted and Alice. It sounds, like the That's how... it sounds like the Hooterville trolley is coming through your house. Yeah, we just uh, we just waved at it, and it's just gone by. Sorry about that. <laughs> no problem. But anyhow, that's how Diane Cannon got into uh, Bob Carroll talent. Uh, Bob Bob Carroll Ted and Alice, and got her Oscar nomination. Sally had gotten hers for Mash, and somewhere along the way, one afternoon there was an actress from New York by the name of Nancy Malone. We used to be on a show called Naked City, I think, with Paul Burke, sure. who became a very successful director in Hollywood. And Nancy was a friend of mine, and she said, I'm having a few people over for drinks. And she said, uh, here's my address. It's up in Laurel Canyon. You might not be able to find it. It's kind of a hidden little area. You know Laurel Canyon. You know all those little hideouts up there, don't you? Sure, of course. So I went there on the way home for a drink. <clears throat> And as I worked my way through the crowd of a smoky room, everybody was smoking pot in those days. And I see this little girl sitting on the floor in dirty tennis shoes and torn Levi's and a sweatshirt. And I decided I'd go over and sit near her uh, and uh, have a drink. She was drinking a beer. And I said, hi, I'm Bud. She says, hi, I'm Carrie. And she said, what do you do? And I said, I'm a famous Hollywood Asian. I said, what do you do? She says, no, you're not a famous Hollywood agent. I said, yes, I am. I said, what do you do? She said, I'm an actress. Well, I didn't know that, uh, Carrie. Uh, where are you from? Chicago. Turns out that Hope Lang's brother, now follow this little golden thread, was in Chicago and went to the Goodman Theater to see a production of Cleopatra. I want to say it's Cleopatra. I came close to that once. And it starred this young, unknown girl by the name of Curie Snodgrass. And I used to kid her. I said, you know, you should just think about changing your name maybe to to Nancy or to Betty Snodgrass. I said, Curie Snodgrass doesn't work that well for you. I said, how did you get here? She said, well, Alan Pakul is going to direct the sterile cuckoo. And even though they're saying that Liza Minnelli is going to play the part, they wanted to test a few people, and they thought that they would test me. So I'm out here for the test and I'm going back on Saturday to Chicago. So I said, well, I wish you luck. I said, if there's anything that I can do for you in Hollywood, here's my business card. Call me. Fade out. I'm with Rita Hayworth now on a film that I put together over in Spain. And I get a call from my brother one day. No, not my brother at that point. One of the other agents at the office, no, 
I get a call. Right, I was an independent agent at that point. Like my brother was working with me. My brother said, "The mother of Carrie Snodgrass is calling you, knowing that you're in Rome." and wants you to stop off in New York and come to Chicago where she'll pay your airfare to meet with her and my husband and talk about my daughter wanting to go to Hollywood. I said, well, I normally don't do those kind of things, Mrs. Snodgrass. I, you know, I'm, I'm a busy agent. I just told Carrie if she's interested in coming to Hollywood again, I'd like to meet her. Well, we want to be very particular about what's going to happen to her career, so we're insisting that you come to Chicago. So I said, well, let me see what happens in New York. And a couple of days later, I found that I had a little window and I could spend overnight in Chicago. So I called them back, flew to Chicago, had dinner with them, with Carrie, and said, I will look after her, take care of her. I can't make you any promises. Yeah, Carrie in those days had this gruff little voice. She sounded almost like June Allison did during the early days, kind of a little guttural in her voice. And um, I said, that's the best that I can do. And like a month later, Carrie said, I'm getting in my Volkswagen next week and I'm coming to Hollywood and I need you to find me in a place to stay and be my agent. And that's how Carrie Snodgrass became a client. I took her to Monique James, who was the head of casting at Universal Studios who instantly fell in love with her. I took her to Ethel Wynott, who was head of casting at CBS. We want to put you under contract. I mean, all of a sudden, this skinny little, funny little looking girl was the hottest thing in town, and we decided that a contract at Universal was the place that she should go to. And when she got there, she started to do every one-hour TV segment. I mean, it... It, it, there was a list of everything on that lot she did, and they f- were putting together a film called Diary of a Mad Housewife, which was the same think, which was the same year as Mash, nineteen seventy. Correct, close to it, and there was a um, uh, they were doing a test. The, I'm trying to remember, there was Joanna Shimkus, who ended up being Mr. City Poitier, was going to test for that. And Monique called Frank Lyon, not Frank Lyon, the, 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 the producer and director of uh, Diary of a Madhouse, I can't remember, blank, unimportant. But anyhow, Kerry tested for it, got Frank the part. Perry. Frank Perry. Frank Perry who somehow or some way his wife found out that he was getting involved. I don't know whether it was with Carrie or somebody else, but bottom line, uh, there was this big feud while they were making the film. Dick Benjamin, who I helped discover at UCLA many years ago, was a client God, I, I'm almost sure he was a client of our agency at the time he made it. I know that he and Paula became clients of ours. There was a period of time somewhere between 1960 and 1967 when I left and opened my own office. You, but anyhow, you, that was you, my three. And you opened your own office called the Bud Burton, Burton 
Burton Agency? Burton Moss Agency. Burton Moss Agency. Agency. Got it, got it. And um, my first client was Tom Bosley, and I'm trying to remember. Tom had gone to see an agent friend of mine by the name of Bill Robinson. Great agent, had only about 10 people. He had Lloyd Bridges, he had Diane Baker, he had Marty Balsam. And when Tom went to meet with the agent, he said, Tom, you're a brilliant actor. I saw you in Fiorello, but Marty Balsam's a client of ours, and I think that there could be a direct, direct conflict. Why don't you go over and see Bud Moss? He came over unannounced, practically, and said, I just left Bill Robinson. And he told me that he was turning me down and I'd like to come with you as a client. Now, Tom had made, I think I, I think I said he got a Tony for Fiorello. I'm trying to remember if he had made this one film before he came with me or afterwards, but Tom and I became very good friends. I don't know how long it took before Ethel Wynett, not Ethel Wynett, um, I'm I, I blank. Bet you, I bet you're gonna talk about Happy Days. Well, she called me, this casting lady called me and said that uh, at, at Paramount, said, um, we have a pilot that we've made uh, with Ron Howard and one other actor that didn't turn out as well as we would like to have had him turn out to play Mr. Cunningham, and we'd like to offer you the part. Eleven years later, Tom and I looked at our careers together, which ended up to being over 30 years, the longest relationship I'd ever had with an actor. And uh, Tom had 11 years on Happy Days, which turned out, actually it was going to be 10 years, and everybody encouraged Henry Winkler to go to the network and said, Henry Winkler was going to leave after the ninth year or eighth year. And they they said, we, we can only stay on the air if you're going to keep playing the Fonzie. And Henry was so gracious about it. He came back to work on the series and they got another couple of years out of it Bob, before were they you, finally... Were you working for Marty Baum when uh, Vic Morrow did Combat? Vic Morrow was a client of ours at GAC. Right. Um, he, I I think I told you I met him with uh, Sydney when they were doing Blackboard Jungle. Right, and and Bill uh, Vic uh, gets combat in '62, from '62 to '67. I'm a huge Vic Morrow fan, a huge. Combat. Well, he was a client then. That's he was on the series then. He was a client. And you got? Did you stay in pretty close touch with him? Uh, did you stay friendly? I, I I did. I mean, it wasn't social friendly like it was with with Sydney, but uh, we were good friends. Tragically, as you know, he got killed. Horrible. Um, Horrible. It was a terrible death. What happened? And um, yeah, the famous Twilight Zone accident. Yes, I, I know. I uh, the reason I, I I'm so up on this is I've had the I had the rights for many years to turn the television series Combat into a motion picture. And we got very, very close at Paramount. We actually sold it to the studio, but they had a choice between making combat or saving Private Ryan. So we know what happened in that situation. 
Yeah. Uh, I was always a big Vic Morrow fan. Well, you know, Bud, I have to ask you if you'll come back because I know we've only touched uh, tr a t trace of your career and you have such a such a wonderful uh, recollection of your days in Hollywood. So so sharp. And I, I pictured all of those meetings and the great stories with Ruth were were just wonderful. Um, I, I I just want to leave you with a door opener because from from Ruth after we separated, Carolyn Jones was a client of the agency. And at that time she was married to Aaron Spelling and she was very sought after. And um we started dating, and after she separated from Aaron, we started living together for, what, five, six years. And one morning, she read the trades, and she said, one of my boys from Texas just became head of the MPAA, and his name is Jack Valenti. And I think you should go over and buy a ticket to the luncheon for next week and meet Jack Valenti. I go to the luncheon. I go back after this uh, roaring luncheon with everybody in Hollywood meeting him, stood in line for 20 minutes with my business card, got to the dais, and I said, Mr. Valenti, I bring you warm regards from one Carolyn Jones. Oh, hole in the head. Now, he, he ended up named three of Ruth's fil uh, Carolyn's films, and he said, I'd be more than happy to meet her one of these days. And as I'm leaving, as I'm leaving the, the hotel, uh, the meet, the luncheon, he came back and Jack said, how are you at 7 o'clock breakfasts? And I said, sure, Mr. Lenny, whenever you want. He said, tomorrow morning in the polo lounge, 7 o'clock for breakfast. And that started almost a 40-year relationship with Jack Valenti, which we can talk about the next time. That sounds great. Well, everyone, we've been listening to Bud Moss tell us wonderful Asides from his long career in Hollywood, uh, you've been listening to Saturday Night at the Movies. We thank you for your, your uh, enjoyment of our show. Whenever you tune in, it's a plus for us. Uh, my name is Steve Rubin. I'm your host. Our producer is Ben Shrewsbury. We're on the Lock 22 Network. Uh, what a wonderful time with you, Bus, and I look forward to our next podcast. I think we'll have even more fun. Thank you. I look forward to it, and thanks again for inviting me. It was a, it was a treat all the way. Got more to, more stories to tell you about. Thank you.